0: If we take medieval Sweden as an example, the first longer literary texts that are preserved are translations. They are translations from other European vernaculars. And these translations, they are the source of what one would today refer to as Swedish literature. Very little one could say is born out of nothing, and translation is a very good example of that.
1: So you start with adapting actually something else and then make it Swedish or make it your own.
0: Yes, one should think of this when one wants to protect Swedish culture, because it's really in the meeting between different cultures that there will be something new. Translation plays a very important role in the creation of new genres, new literary traditions.
1: Welcome to Skås Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von Delia, and this is the third episode about the study of language. We have previously heard more about research on the origin of Indo-European languages from Jenny Larson, and on research on multilingualism from Marianne Gullberg. This time we are traveling to medieval times and we'll hear more about French literature from Sophia Lodén. Sophia Lodén is a researcher at Stockholm University and a Pro Futura Fellow here at SCAS. Welcome Sophia, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Thank you very much, Nathalie. I'm very happy to participate in this podcast. So as you said, my, my name is Sophia Lodén and I am a Pro Futura Fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study in Uppsala, and then I also work as a researcher and teacher at the Department of Romance Studies and Classics at Stockholm University, where I teach French literature, French civilization. My research is about medieval literature, as you said. I'm interested in the medieval European romance. I have just finished a book that will be published in February on the links between Medieval French romances and medieval Swedish literature. I'm interested in how different kinds of stories linked to the courtly world were diffused in the whole of Europe through translations, adaptations, rewritings. And I believe that the, the circulation of romances contributed to the Europeanization of medieval culture. This is the main argument in my book. At the same time, the circulation of romances also played a key role in the birth of different national literatures.
1: Yes, and we will talk a lot more about this today. If we just go a little bit back to the beginning, how did you become interested in the study of French literature and this particular aspect of it?
0: I liked French a lot at school already. As so I don't remember. I was, I think... 12, 13 years old when I started studying French at school and it was really my favorite. I don't know why, but I really did like French and I continued to like French during high school. And then when I had finished high school, I very much wanted to travel by myself as I think many young people. And I signed up for the Erasmus program, which brought me to Poitiers, Poitiers in France where I studied French literature at the university. And Poitiers is a a really lovely medieval town. And the university has a somewhat medieval profile too, with a number of prominent medievalists engaged as teachers. And um, I think that it was the course that I took on medieval literature in Poitiers that really opened up a new and exciting world to me. At this time, I was extremely interested in all aspects of um, the French language. And the, the study of old French had something very exotic about it, I must confess. It was, I mean, really fascinating to, to discover that I could actually understand and analyze this very old language. And then the literature that I read did not follow the same aesthetic rules that I was used to. And that was another thing that I really found very interesting. And yet, I would say, I did recognize many things in this literature, in the literary universe of the medieval texts that I studied. I think I recognized The literary universe that I loved as a child, actually, mainly the fantasy world of uh, Narnia by C.S. Lewis, which was really one of my favorite reading experiences as a child.
1: Yeah, I recognize this a lot because I was reading a lot as a young teenager, devouring books and uh, also this kind of genre fantasy and this medieval related themes. And uh, one of those books, or it's several volumes, was called The Once and Future King by T.H. White, which has the Arthurian um, romance as a base. It's a retold King Arthur saga. And it was very exciting, I thought. Very interesting intrigues and things happening. A lot of uh, popular literature and also films are sort of based on this caption of King Arthur, the Arthurian legend, and it fascinates the wide public. And why do you think that is? What is there that's so fascinating to so many people and can be the base for so many stories even nowadays?
0: So I think the Arthurian stories are, they are adventures and they are kind of medieval action. And there is definitely a lot of suspense in them. So that's a very important factor. I don't think they have ever stopped fascinating. They are also interesting because they mix descriptions of a sort of historical reality and historical ideals with marvelous aspects. Uh, And then they raise the really big questions in life about the role of nature versus culture, about the human condition, about love. King Arthur himself is he's also interesting he's the figure who holds this whole legend together but he's rather peripheral in most stories in most Arthurian romances whereas it is mainly his different knights who are explored more closely the main intrigue with a knight searching for adventure is very open malleable which i think explains why the legend has survived for so long because it is possible it is even easier to adapt it to frame to give it a new frame to adapt it to new historical context to new cultural context and now
1: in uh, one of your projects you have looked a little bit at translation of the medieval literature not only king arthur but also other books stories can you tell us a little bit more about the translations
0: so translation, is, it's a very big theme for me. Almost everything I have worked on is linked to the question of translation. And I, of course, I, I do think it's a very interesting theme on, on many levels. So translation uh, represents a meeting between languages, cultures, sometimes meeting between historical periods. And it has to be understood in relation to the target culture. Uh, but it is also interesting as a means to approach the source culture, and it may help us to see the, the source in a new light. That is a very important finding for, for me. One could say that the translation both marks a, a kind of border and then functions as a, as a bridge. And in my ongoing research, I am interested in its role in the The Europeanization process of medieval culture, when one text is translated into several languages, these different translations create new links between cultures. I think it's very interesting to remember that translations tend to play a crucial role in cultures with a more limited literary production. If we take medieval Sweden as an example, the first longer literary texts that are preserved are translations. They are translations from other European vernaculars. And these translations, they are the source of what one would today refer to as Swedish literature. Very little, one could say, is born out of nothing. And translation is a very good example of that.
1: So you start with adapting actually something else and then make it... Swedish or make it your own.
0: Yes, uh, I think you should, I mean, one should think of this when one wants to protect Swedish culture, because it's really in the meeting between different cultures that there will be something new. Translation plays a very important role in the creation of new genres, new literary traditions. Not only in the Middle Ages, but very much so in the Middle Ages.
1: But then when you do this translation, so when people have done the translations, they have still adapted it to the setting, to say the Swedish setting, maybe, I assume, maybe the nature around you and also other cultural things. Is that so?
0: That is absolutely so. So each translator will adapt his translation to the particular target culture. And in some uh, cases these adaptations are very considerable they are i mean the, the translation is not what we would call a translation today because the text is so different in other contexts, perhaps the, the translation will be very close to the source depending on also the difference between the two cultures that the translation will try to, to bridge
1: And I also read somewhere that a translation was not just done by one person, as it's often the case today when you translate a book, and also that you translate using maybe several sources, like the same sort of text, but in different languages. Can you say a bit more about that?
0: Yes, absolutely. That is the case, and and very much so. For example, in medieval Sweden, if we take Sweden as an example, Sweden in the Middle Ages, was in many ways culturally a limited space there was not a lot of of literary activity going on and then people went abroad they went abroad to study and and one could imagine that they picked up literary influences abroad and then decided to translate particular texts but how how do you translate from old French to to old Swedish and yes there are many examples of translators who consider perhaps one language more prestigious than another so they will put forward that this is a translation from French often but then actually what the translator does will be to to look at another version in a language closer to the for example Swedish language so that makes the translation translation from two languages. In other cases, the translator has really used two or even more sources in order to, you could imagine, different possibilities. The translator could use different sources in order to, to make something really new. Perhaps he wants to do his own version of a text, so then he will look at all these different versions and write something new himself. But it could also be that he really wants to understand one particular text and then uses other versions other translations in order to to understand the the important source that is what translators do today as well so there are many different possibilities can you backtrack this how this happened it is very complicated it is very complicated it takes a lot of time it was really what i did in my doctoral dissertation but now in my research i don't think that the question of sources is so interesting, to be very honest. I think the interesting thing really with studying translations is to to consider medieval literature in its very complex, diverse European tradition. That is what is interesting, to look at these texts together and to see in what ways different texts communicate with each other.
1: Exactly. They communicate with each other and they say a lot about the society and the culture at the time, right? I mean, that's what you are studying in your projects. So what, what do they say about that time and, and what was going on?
0: Yes, it depends uh, really on the particular texts and context one uh, looks at. But in general, I think it is fascinating to what extent the, the different medieval European cultures were open to new influences and how literary texts rapidly circulated between different languages and uh, cultures. The Nordic countries, they are an interesting example. If we look at the the Arthurian legend, for example, it is very interesting to think about one thing. It was, in many ways, the first most important Arthurian romances were written in French and then they were quickly translated into German, and then they spread to the whole of Europe. But actually, it was also picked up at a very early stage in medieval Iceland, which is, I mean, it is surprising when you think of where Iceland is situated. And then it was also picked up very early in Norway, even though the the famous Icelandic sagas seem to reflect uh, a indigenous and unique literary tradition. It was not a completely isolated phenomenon and recent scholarship has shown that the content of the Icelandic sagas, to some extent is marked by the contact with the rest of Europe. The contact with Europe played a crucial role in the de- development of the Icelandic saga. I wouldn't say that it is the medieval European romance, it's not it's not the source of the Icelandic saga, but there was much more contact that, than we tend to to believe. And now in your research, you look
1: at uh, borders. Um, one of your projects is called Moving Borders and Landscapes
0: in Arthurian Romans. What kind of borders is that? So there are many types of, of borders in my, my project. Translation is about transcending one type of border that interests me between languages, between cultures, historical periods. So in my, my ongoing project, I am also interested in borders in a more concrete sense, namely how borders between different landscapes are depicted in the Arthurian romance. So I, I study different descriptions of the uh, landscapes, such as uh, the forest, the garden, and, and the sea. And then I try to analyze what actually marks the borders between these different landscapes. And then how these descriptions of uh, these borders are translated and adapted in different medieval contexts and thus crossing new borders. So, so there are a lot of borders. But on the very first level, I am interested in the borders between different landscapes. In this series of SCAS Talks, we talk about language, but actually in parallel,
1: we also have a series about diversity. And um, I was just thinking about taking that angle a little bit. In what way does the literature contribute to diversity? And since we now talk about borders and such, can it actually also achieve the opposite, strengthening or emphasizing cultural and also physical borders?
0: In my research, I want to understand the the mechanisms behind the Europeanization of medieval culture. As I said, when studying the the pan-European dimensions of medieval literature, it becomes clear that the medieval European culture, which was really becoming European during the Middle Ages, was marked by diversity. Uh, It was marked by diversity just as much as by, by unity. The cultural scene was much more dynamic than we tend to believe. Many different languages coexisted. You have spoken about multilinguism, I know, in this podcast. It was also a very common thing in the Middle Ages. Languages did coexist. And also literary different literary traditions existed at the same time. And translations did repeatedly inspire new textual traditions. And then even though many of the first and most famous romances were written in French, translations of these French texts should not be considered as less important. Or that, that is at least what I what I think. On the contrary, these translations of French romances they may cast new light on the French tradition, and together with the French texts, the, the translations Form a purely European genre, which is marked by the diversity of medieval culture.
1: Can you make any parallels to today? We talk about European culture and unity, and the influence of different literatures on each other. So, this is a little bit outside of your topic, but can you see anything that is like that today?
0: I. Could see that sometimes I think there is a lack of interest in cultures from abroad, or that we tend to forget the importance of of translation. To be curious and to to try to understand, to read other cultures, I I would like to to see more of that.
1: There has been a lot of discussions about um children and also yeah young adults not learning enough language in school. Is that something you engage in also that discussion?
0: Yes, of course. And I mean, I teach French at a Swedish university and uh, I can see that very clearly. We have quite a lot of students who start to learn French and then they study at Stockholm University for six months or a year. But then they, they disappear. And of course, I everybody doesn't have, to, have a, to do a dissertation or to study French for five years. But I don't know. I mean, we will not have enough teachers in the future. So schools will not be able to to teach French anymore. And I know that this is not only the case of French. It is the case of many European languages at Swedish universities. I mean, this is a a political question. And and, and I hope that measures will be, be taken in order to improve the situation. Because I think it is quite serious when you think about the future. I hope that my children will be able to to learn different foreign languages when they are 15 years old or...
1: We diverged a little bit from the topic, but it's very interesting. So I was also thinking when we talk about translations, there is this term lost in translation but uh, reading a little bit more about your research i was thinking about is there actually can it be the other way around that you change and add something in translation so things are not lost but added instead
0: there are many things that are always lost in a, a translation but in in the medieval texts that i study and also in translations more generally i think these omissions are They are interesting in their own right, since they say something about the translator's focus, the translator's preferences. The medieval translator did not always seek to transmit his source as faithfully as possible. It is very very striking to what extent he also took great liberties uh, in order to adapt his work to a new and different context. This is very common. The additions the medieval translator does are, of course, also very interesting for me as a scholar, since they say something about what the translator felt that he had to explain, what he had to develop. I think it is important to remember that the writer did not have the same role in the Middle Ages as today. The medieval writer was not expected to have a a particularly unique, uh, personal voice, but he could pick up the motifs, formulations very freely from, from other texts, from other writers. It was actually part of being a good writer to, to connect to previous texts, to previous periods, to, to the antiquities, to, to previous medieval writers. And it is a later idea that uh, an author must be original. And uh, this is linked I think to the role of the translator because the medieval translator in his turn is also freer to to modify and rewrite sources everything is more floating when you study medieval literature and speaking of borders one could say that the borders between a source text and its translation they were looser than today that sounds very creative Yes, it is there is something in this openness and the, the the lack of rules and the lack of specific original that you have to protect. You didn't have that, and that meant also that ideas ideals formulations they they could move in a, a very creative way. I think that is something that I really i mean that we really not only fascinates me with medieval literature, but also something that I actually really like on a more personal level. There is an openness to picking up things from from everywhere. It makes it a bit hard to study sometimes because you don't understand. I mean, as a modern reader, where things come from, it's very complicated to understand all these different layers. But it is, I mean, when I think about the role of the medieval writer, I think it's a very nice one, actually. I mean, being a good writer is being someone who can communicate with the past, who can really use his colleagues and who doesn't have to be so unique, but who can actually rather put something very nice together. And that, I mean, the result is more important than the personal voice.
1: Recently, you have looked at some of the stories of um, Astrid Lindgren, the Swedish author of uh, children's books, and how she has been inspired by the medieval literature. This sounds very exciting to me, of course. I'm one of the many who have read all her books and were very influenced by the books as a child and have read to my children and so on. So
0: tell us more. I have loved working on... Astrid it has really been very exciting. It started some time ago. I was asked by a colleague of mine to write something about how the Arthurian legend has been picked up in Swedish literature after the Middle Ages. And I didn't really know what to write. I've been, I've been working a lot on the, the medieval reception of, of the Arthurian legend in Sweden. But what should I write about the later context? And I realized at some point that if one compares to other countries with very, I mean, a great number of adaptations of of, uh, the Arthurian legend, there are relatively few Swedish texts that explicitly connect to the Arthurian legend. I mean, there are some, but it is very much unexplored. King Arthur is not a big name in in Swedish literature, I would say. But then I was reading... uh, Mio mio mio, my son, to my son Edmund. And I mean, I I read a lot to my children, and I but I, I had forgotten Mio since I read it myself as a child. But and that was a great discovery. I think it's a fantastic book in so many ways. So I was really moved by Mio. But I and then I was also struck by the number of Arthurian connections. I mean, there are many Arthurian connections. Reading to to my son, I also I was uh, looking for this chapter that I should write, and then I I realized that I must write something about Astilíngrin and the, the connections to the Arthurian universe. Even though the, there are, I mean, very obvious connections between a number of, of texts by Astilíngrin and the Arthurian romance. I don't mean that. Astrid Lindgren consciously uh, wanted to connect her work to King Arthur. I, d- I don't think she did. I-, I think she very well knew King Arthur. She knew about this, but th- this was not her main source of inspiration. Astrid Lindgren found inspiration in the tradition of fairy tales. She has said that herself. Fairy tales was really, I mean, that was her main source of influence. But fairy tales, fairy tales that influenced Lindgren, were closely, very closely linked to the Arthurian world. So uh, in the chapter that I finally wrote, I I tried to show the ways in which some of Liggren's texts, not only Miamin but also other texts, are closely linked to, to the Arthurian legend, even though they don't mention King Arthur. But that is a bit like the Arthurian romance too. I mean, King Arthur, he is often very peripheral. Uh, so so that's not a problem, I think. But I'm interested in things like um, the description of this very Arthurian forest, the landscape, the, the most famous landscape of the Arthurian romance. I looked at the role of the knight, the mention of a knight, and then also what a knight is, the role of the adventurer, then also of... Um, of history as a theme. History is a, a theme that, that interests Ingrid a lot in, in several
1: of her texts. Yes, I'm also thinking about the brother Lionhearts.
0: There, there is a lot about history in the brother uh, Lather, Lionhearts, yes.
1: So you find the Arthurian legend a little bit everywhere nowadays.
0: Yes, and it, it says something about the impact impact of the Arthurian legend, the role that this legend played and and continues to play in um, European culture. I mean, in Sweden, we don't talk about it so often. It's not something that is very present, but it's there. It's absolutely there.
1: Interesting to see how things have evolved and also diverged and taken um, inspiration from each other. And I really like this that you point out with the translations that they were more free before, because then you... Can modulate it to your own purpose or your own environment.
0: I mean, in a way, you could uh, you could uh, draw a line also to Astrid Lingan. I mean, Astrid if she's such a great writer, it's also partly due to that. I mean, she's very influenced, of course. She has her her influences. She's very much inspired by by the genre of fairy tales, and she, I mean, she she read she read a lot, but then she didn't. I mean, her texts are her own i mean the influences are there they are very visible in some cases but still what she actually wrote it's not following strictly a specific source or inspiration but she she does something very much of her own
1: but let's talk a little bit about SCAS and different academic environments because you have been Yeah, you're in constant contact with France, I've also done part of your education there. But here at SCAS, you have been physically in the academic year of 2018-2019, if I understood correctly. How was that? How was being at the SCAS and how did your research uh, benefit from this environment?
0: It was a great uh, experience. I had just uh, spent a year in, in Venice, in Italy. Before coming to SCAS, and my experience in, in Venice was really quite something. I thought that I would it would be very difficult to match Venice, but SCAS did match Venice. SCAS offered an ideal research environment. I had the 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 loveliest office that I could ever think of, and I met so many inspiring scholars from different fields. I got more things done than usual. I think because the, the conditions were perfect, I had time to write in, in the morning, followed by a short fika, and then some more writing, followed by a wonderful lunch together with all the other fellows. And then in the afternoon I could write even more. And once a week or so there was a seminar. And after a couple of months doing this, I had many new friends. I, I suddenly knew. Many scholars and some of us embarked on collaborative projects. For example, I wrote an article about King Arthur's knight Percival and whether he might actually be considered as autistic or not, uh, together with my professor colleague Thalje Falk who specialized in autism. And I mean, that was really something I would never have been able to do if I uh, had spend this time at SCAS and, um, and also to get this time to, to really get to know other scholars from other other fields. It's not enough to meet for a couple of hours, but at SCAS I really had this whole year to get to know people. And that has really, I think, in a way transformed how I think about uh, collaboration and um, interdisciplinary work you, you need time but it is really exciting when you can actually make it happen
1: yeah so constant exposure to to other people and other disciplines
0: yes it's i think it's very creative i mean speaking of creativity the the traditional structure of swedish universities with departments i think it's good in many ways but in terms of of creativity I think it is a bit limiting it's really very creative to discuss ideas with people from other fields because then you get all these new ways of seeing things so SCAS has really meant a lot and I hope I will be able to to come back to SCAS soon.
1: Now more recently you have been elected as a member of the Young Academy of Sweden why did you decide to join this academy?
0: Actually, I think that one reason why I wanted to become a member of the academy was that I missed my hair at staff that is that is really true. I wanted to meet scholars from other fields and my own, and that is what you really do at the academy i I would like to build bridges between different disciplines and perhaps in particular between the humanities and the natural sciences. I mean, you could really talk of a crisis for modern languages. And I think you have to do something about this. And I I think one of the ways to to go about it is to to open up for new sorts of collaboration. And you also have to collaborate. And I think that the humanities need to, to engage in closer collaboration with the natural sciences and social sciences and then I, I, I'm also interested in uh, reaching out to children and to, to young people, but really to children, and discuss research. And that that is something that the Academy already does uh, quite a lot. And that I, I hope I will soon be able to to take part in uh, that is uh, something i really want to do and that would be very difficult to do on my own i need i need the academy to be able to, to get the opportunity to meet young people to meet children and then finally i would say i hope to be able to work with questions related to internationalisation Because, of course, I've I've lived in France, I've lived in Italy, I've worked and and lived in Italy and France. And this has really, I mean, this is something that has influenced me a lot. And I would like to work with questions concerning European collaboration and also the role of of European languages. That is really something very important to me. So I hope that uh, I will get this opportunity uh, with the Young Academy.
1: Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks. It was a pleasure to talk to you and um, learn more about your
0: research. Thank you, Natalie. I really liked to participate and to discuss all of these questions with you.
1: And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you want to share it with your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS talks on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us to make sure not to miss any new content. This episode concludes our theme on the study on languages. Maybe you would also like to know more about the research on the origin and spread of Indo-European languages. In that case, you should listen to episode number four, where I talk to Jenny Larsson about the multidisciplinary project LAMP. Or maybe you are like me, one of the many people who live and work with multiple languages every day. In that case, you should listen to episode number six, where Marianne Gullberg talks more about our powerful capacity to learn new languages. The next episode of SCUS Talks will be on the topic of diversity again, With Benjamin Madley as a guest. We will talk about some of the history of the Native Americans in California and his book An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Bye for now.